If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Romans. If you don't have one with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And if you use that Bible, you can find the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, which we will be reading from shortly on page 893. We are almost now finished with the book of Romans. We are closing in at the end of the 15th chapter. For those of you keeping count at home, that means we have one more chapter to go. Uh, We spoke at the end of the 11th chapter, which is basically the ending of the the first major section of the book of Romans, this theological section in this book. As Paul ends that, he, he launches into this benediction about the unsearchable nature of God's wisdom and how high and deep and wide and how beautiful it is. And he basically launches into a praise of God. And we mentioned there that if you were to understand everything that was going on in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, if you could give an exposition of it that that Paul himself would sign off on and give a hearty amen to, and you can know all the applications that are to come from it, if you can speak about the propitiation that Jesus Christ offers and the depravity of man and the gloriousness of the Spirit, if you could speak about all those things and the election of his people, and you were to come to the end of those things, being able to give an accurate account of all of it, and were not led to praise and worship God, you have utterly and completely missed everything. You may have understood the facts, but you have certainly missed the import of what Paul was trying to say. As we come to the end of the book of Romans, there's something similar that we kind of must say about how we finish off the book of Romans. That just as in that 11th chapter, to praise and to worship God is the final sort of fulfillment of what Paul has spoken in those first 11 chapters, we're reminded here at the end, just as we were at the beginning, that this book was written with a purpose. That purpose was to elicit from the Romans background on Paul, theological convictions of Paul, so that they would help support him in his ministry to Spain. So that if you understand everything that the book of Romans has to say, not only are you meant to be led into the worship of God, to stand in awe and wonder at what God has done, but also you ought to be led to be longing for the mission of God to go forward, that men and women who have not heard the word of God would indeed hear the word of God. This is precisely what Paul has done in this book and what precisely he has led us to. This morning, I hope that we can indeed leave sort of fired up for missions. I hope that it's more than than just a, a passing thing that we say that we do, but it is indeed a passion for us. But I also want more than just a passion in us. I hope that we can have a well-focused passion, that our aims might be precise and accurate, and that we would do exactly as Paul instructs us today, even as we follow in his example. Paul will here talk about his desires and missions, what he intends to do, what he wants from the Romans as he does this. We should seek to pattern our own pursuit of missions by the same manner and means. So let us read from these verses at the end of the book of Romans, in Romans 15, verse 22, and see if we can keep these things in mind as we seek to advance the gospel. Read with me in Romans 15, beginning in verse 22. There Paul writes, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you 
once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. As we keep these words in mind, the first thing I would like to have put before us this morning is the stuff of missions. Just what is the stuff of missions? What is the the meat of missions? What is Paul hoping to do? First, and I think primary, Paul is going to Spain to reach the lost with the gospel. He spoke of this at the ending of our passage last week, but again, he is reminded at the beginning of this week, he has no room left here in Macedonia and Achaia to do work. He's planted the churches that he has longed to plant. He feels like his work here is done, and he's got his eyes set to Spain because no one has set foot in Spain. No one has spoken the word of the gospel to the people in Spain, at least so far as Paul knows. We would say that they are significantly unreached and unengaged. That means that not only are there very few believers there, which would make them unreached, where people just don't have access to Scripture or to the gospel, or even being able to find believers might be very tough in Spain. We would actually say that they are unengaged wholly. The word of the Lord and the gospel of God has not even made it to those shores. This is the great task that Christ has left us in the gospel, so that we might speak to all nations the goodness of the work of Jesus Christ. This is still our goal. It is not just Paul's goal, but it is a goal that is placed upon us. Jesus has said himself in Matthew 24 that until the word is preached to every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, he will not come back. This is affirmed in the book of Revelation because in Revelation, we have people John says, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, standing around the throne worshiping God. They cannot be there unless they've called upon the name of the Lord, and they can't call upon the name of the Lord unless someone has preached it to them, and they can't be preached unless somebody is to go. So Paul himself will go. We ourselves go. We send out missionaries. Again, somewhere around three and a half to 4,000 of them sent by Southern Baptists around the world to difficult places so that we might connect with every tongue, tribe, nation, and language to hear the gospel. This is the central reality of the church. It is the central reality of our church. I mean, we are here to make disciples among the people of the middle of Michigan. It's true. But in doing so, we are also to be connected to the mission of the church, not just our church, but of the church, to get the gospel out to every man, woman, and child who we can possibly reach it with. This takes all kinds of people to do. Paul knows that it takes all kinds of people. Certainly it takes missionaries. There have to be people who go and preach. But it takes more than that. 
It takes strong, established churches to send those missionaries. To have strong, established churches, you need pastors and elders. You need people who are growing in the Lord. You need deacons to help serve that church, to allow the ministries to grow up people in the Lord so that they can indeed be sent out. It takes businessmen and businesswomen to provide funds to help financially fund the actual work of missions. It takes administrators to know where to send people, to get them aid and comfort when they need to, to be able to communicate between them and the churches. It takes theological training, some stuff that that people in the pews don't necessarily need, language training, training of how to culturally handle the differences and how to evangelize people who have a completely other way of looking at the world. It takes translation specialists, people who not only know the original languages of the Bible, but are specialized to handle other foreign languages because those people, likewise, should not rely upon us to tell them what Scripture says. They should be able to read it in their own language. So, as William Carey said, leaving for India, he said, I'll go down into the pit, but you need to hold the rope. The deal is, though, for every one William Carey who goes down into the pit, it takes a lot of people to hold the rope. Not because William Carey was a large man, just because that's the way it is. We are here to promote the proclamation of the gospel to every man, woman, and child in the world. It is the commission that our Lord Jesus Christ has left for us not so that we could sit in our own comfort and enjoy the blessings of the gospel ourselves, but so that we could propagate it throughout the world. That is the stuff of missions. But it is not the only stuff of missions. What is interesting to me in all of this text is not just Paul's concern to take the gospel to the nations, but given that he has longed to do that for a while, he's been hindered by God. He clearly had his mind set on Spain for a while, and he says, I've been hindered by God until I finished my work in Macedonia and Achaia, and I've really wanted to come to you, I've really wanted to go to Spain, but I'm putting all of it on hold. I I know that there are lost people in Spain, I'm not going there. I've longed to come and see you, to be refreshed by you, to spend time with you, to get to know you. I'm not going to do that right away either. I've taken up this collection. Jerusalem was hit by a famine not too long before Paul wrote this, maybe a decade, possibly less. That has left a number of people in Jerusalem incredibly impoverished, especially Christians in Jerusalem, who are likely poorer anyway, without the sort of established help that Jews would have had, because those Jews were not going to help Jewish Christians. And so Paul, from Macedonia and Achaia, took up this offering and said, I, I find it important enough to deliver it. It seems to be something of a confirmation of his gospel, that the Jews themselves would accept an offering from the Gentiles of help seems to indicate that they view them on the same plane, that they would, they would say, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul says, hey, they, they owed it to them. They're sharing in the spiritual blessings. They ought to share in material blessings. It's no minor thing. I've heard missionaries and preachers give, give statistics, right? There's seven and a half billion people in the world, and they will, they'll have this sort of running clock of the people who are dying every hour, every minute, every second. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, those people without the Lord Jesus Christ have no possible way of going to heaven. Paul knew that. 
He might not have known how many people were in Spain, but he knew his delay was going to cost people in Spain. He knew that he didn't need to be the one to take the offering to Jerusalem. And still, he thought it was important enough to delay everything for. Do not grow in an understanding of the gospel and of missions that believes that the only thing we are to do in missions is to proclaim the gospel to people and to not care about the physical needs of brothers and sisters, of those who are in Africa and in Asia. This is part and parcel of the gospel. Paul must have viewed this as part and parcel of his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles because he is delaying everything for this. He knows that people will die while he's gone. There's no way that Paul has lost that. It's also not lost on him that he could send it by somebody else. But Paul thinks it's important for him to show up. He knows that it's dangerous, yet he will still go. Don't bifurcate the preaching of the gospel from the work of missions and helping people out because the New Testament just refuses to do it. One of the most stark passages in this is in the letter of Galatians. Galatians, where they're struggling with the gospel. Paul is trying to clarify the gospel. He's doing everything he can to to get them to understand that what he has proclaimed is indeed the gospel. Any deviation from it means that it's no gospel at all. No one's being saved. To do this, he's talking about how not only have I preached the gospel to you, but but I I wanted to make sure that I wasn't running in vain. I wanted to make sure that I was doing things appropriately. So I, I went back to Jerusalem and I met the big three. I met James, John, and Cephas. I met Peter. And I talked with them. And they, they had somebody there who was going to contradict me, and we worked it out. I told them what the gospel was and, and how I preached the gospel to the Gentiles. That, that might look and sound different than the way the gospel is preached to the Jews, but it's the same gospel. And at the end of that, of importance, they reached out their hand, and they said, God be with you. He gave me the right hand of fellowship, meaning we're all on the same page here. Peter will go to the Jews. You will go to the Gentiles. Go. Only when he's leaving, they say one thing, Galatians 2.10, which is important because this is completely and utterly off topic. No reason for Paul to mention it in this book. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor. Now, it's, it's really not in the whole train of thought in Galatians that Paul would even mention that. It's a very strange thing to just kind of pop up there. You read commentaries on it. People sometimes don't even comment on the verse because I don't think that they know what it's doing there. I'll tell you what it's doing there. It's the gospel. They look at him and say, you go preach the gospel, but do not forget the poor. And what Paul doesn't say is, okay, so that is a concession I was willing to make. All right, if I must, I will. But I'm really more focused on preaching the gospel. No, he doesn't say it. He's... This is a book which is all about getting the gospel right, and he says, that's the very thing that I was eager to do. People in the world are not just spirits that are embodied. Their physical needs matter. They need the gospel because they will go to hell without it. But they need water. They need energy. They need teaching and training. They need education. We should be able to provide all of that for them.
There isn't a reason why we bifurcate this. They don't just need wells, it's true, but they do need wells. And oftentimes those are the very means by which God allows us to proclaim the gospel to them. The stuff of missions is caring about people. That's what we do. So we meet their needs both spiritually and physically. Second, the support of missions. Paul has talked about the stuff of missions in here, and I think he also speaks of the support of missions quite clearly. The reason why he's going to Rome is because he wants to be helped on his journey by you, by the Romans. I think that he's looking for three things from the Romans to be helped on his journey. Profit, he's seeking money. He is seeking provision or uh, um, personnel. Uh, He wants people to go with him, and he's seeking prayer. Let's talk first about profit. There's no denying that Paul wants to gain financially from the people of Rome. This is part of what he means by being helped. It's not terribly hard to see through what Paul is saying there, and the Romans likely know well. Paul needs these resources. He's a tent maker, and he will do what he can on the side to help support the ministry, but he also understands that he doesn't want newly founded churches to have to support him on their own. And so what he does is he banks not only on his tent making, but on older established churches, funding that work so that the newly established churches don't have to. So Paul does need money. This is something that missions just can't get around. This is how the world works. There has to be money in order for people to hear the gospel. Now, here at Crossway, we honestly don't talk much about giving. There's three reasons for this. One, I'm only going to talk about it when it comes up in the text, and it just doesn't come up in the text all the time. Frankly, when you hear pastors talking about giving all the time, it's because they're finding texts that talk about it all the time, if they're even doing that, which is hard because the New Testament doesn't talk about it very much. So that's one reason. The second reason is because, frankly, as our church goes, our members are very good at giving, and we want to encourage them to be faithful in that, but I've got no reason to lay into you about, laying, about not, not meeting your financial obligations to the church. And three, because the way in which people of the world view the church is that finances are pretty much the only reason why we exist. We're just here to ask for money from you. And I want to avoid that particular outlook like the plague. So we don't ask for visitors to give anything. If you're a visitor with us this morning, you are not a member of this church, we're not looking for any sort of handout from you. We, we, we don't want you to give to us. We want you to receive from us. You are under no obligation to give. But we should understand what Paul is doing and at least do the same in proxy. He's asking for funding for missions, and funding for missions is important. I know that Lottie Moon is six months away. December seems like it's a long ways away, but I'm telling you to get ready for it. Get ready for it. Be prepared. Don't, don't walk into December thinking, I've got to buy a whole bunch of gifts. Oh, yeah, and there's that Lottie Moon thing. Be prepared. Do some planning. Put money aside early on so that when December comes, you will be fully ready. Make a goal and try and reach that goal over the next six months so that you can give generously and joyfully to the work of missions going on around the world. I'm not asking for you to give to Crossway so that we can pass it on. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes directly to the IMB, which funds every single one of our missionaries overseas. 
and some administrative costs. But the vast majority of that goes into the pockets of the missionaries so that they can live, so that they can work, so that they can have shelter, so that they can have the the things that they need to promote the gospel amongst the people that they find themselves. And I realize life is going to be getting tougher financially. There's a lot of economists that think we're heading to an imminent recession. Inflation over the past year, at the beginning of May, was something like 8.6%, which is a huge amount of inflation, the most in my life. To give you an idea of maybe how you should look at that, other than saying, listen, pastor, it's going to be really hard for me to give much by the time December comes because money's just going to get tighter. I understand that. Let me ask you to think about it this way, though. If money's getting tighter for you, it's certainly getting tighter for those overseas. 2020 to 2021, Lottie Moon Christmas offering by Southern Baptist raised $177 million, give or take. That's, that's a good chunk of change to be dumped into international missions. To get the exact same value at 8.6% inflation, we, Southern Baptists, would need to raise not $177 million, but $194 million. And that is to fund the missionaries that we have, not to put new ones out. So yeah, I, I know that there's a crunch coming, but there's a crunch coming for everybody. This is why it's good to prepare, to think through and think ahead, to set goals, to say we will financially support those, even at pain to ourselves. He wants profit, but he also wants personnel. Paul needs people to be with him. Chapter 16 lists a number of people that Paul already has with him. Tertius, Timothy. Paul travels with people. He travels with people, at least some of that is a missionary strategy, that he's going to plant churches, but he doesn't want to sit there until they are fully established in all of their ways. He's going to plant churches and he's going to move on, but he will oftentimes leave somebody back that he trusts to help get that church on their feet. And so that's part of the reason why he wants it. But honestly, a huge portion of the reason is because Paul just needs encouragement. He needs people to be on the mission field with him. He needs to be helped by those people on the mission field. Paul often laments how people have abandoned him. And he often praises people like the Philippians for their care for him, even when he's in chains. And if Paul is affected like that, you know your missionaries are affected like that. Paul had the calling of God in a way in which almost no one else had. The Lord Jesus shone like the midday sun over him, called him, directed him, revealed himself to him in ways in which we will never have in our lives. Paul knew like no one else that he was gifted by God and called by God to do this particular task, and yet he still needed encouragement and help. He couldn't do it all on his own. And if he can't, then our missionaries who are on the field certainly can't. So some of us need to consider, like I think Paul would ask the Romans to consider, going out to the field. For some of you, that's going to be asking God the question, should I be a missionary? And, and looking for an answer of yes. Through people, and talking to them, through events in your life, asking for God to give you some sort of an indication that yes, I'm calling for you to go out on the mission field. Never mind your age, never mind your education, 
Never mind the finances that may or may not be there. Ask God to give you a sign to say, yes, I'm calling you out on the mission field. But some of you should be even more bold than that. Some of you should actually ask God for no. Say, God, you've said that we are to go. You've commissioned us to go. I am, I am trying to be faithful to your calling. And I'll tell you what, Lord, I will go. I'm, I'm going to pack bags. I'm going to do the training. I'm going to do everything I need to do. I will go unless you put the brakes on it. So if you don't want me to go, you better make it clear because otherwise I'm going. You need to at least be willing to ask those kinds of questions. And every single Christian has to, in some time in their life, wrestle with those things. Not all of you are going to be in a place, in a position where you can do that. I understand that. But some of you are. And you need to honestly, before the Lord, ask those types of questions. And it's worth noting in here as well that for all, all the things that are going on here, it's personal for Paul. He's not just writing the Romans and saying, listen, I need, I need money and I need personnel. I don't know how the ancient trade routes went. I don't know if actually going up to Rome was just part and parcel of the way in which they got from Jerusalem all the way over to Spain. But it seems to me, looking at a map, that there's actually a quicker route. And Paul could have easily said, I'm sending Phoebe to you, and what you're going to do is you're going to read the letter, you're going to give her some cash, and anyone else who wants to come, you're going to meet me at the tip of the boot, and then we're going to go flat over, okay? I don't actually need to come see you. I can get everything from you through the correspondence. But Paul seems to know that people matter. Maybe that is the more efficient way to go, but I think Paul understands that it's not quite as effective. He sees the Romans not simply as a means to an end, but an end in and of themselves. He says, I, I've enjoyed your company for a while, and then I will go. He wants to be refreshed by them, just as they might be refreshed by him. Paul cares about them as people. This is why it's important, especially Southern Baptists, it's really easy to just send money off. It's really easy to pray in general for people. But it's good to know and to have a heart for people who are there and present. It will keep them on your mind. It will keep the work that they're doing on your mind. This is why we had the on-mission celebration. I know this is a little posthumous, but nevertheless, this is why we have that. Why we, we had a doctor come and talk to us about her work in Chad. That reason is so that you can put a face to the work. You can think of, of Dr. I can't think of the name that she used that was fake now. I can only think of the real name, so I'll keep it to myself, Dr. Claire, right? So she's got to use a fake name because she's in Chad. But the reason why we want people to come in like that is so that you can know them, you can meet them, you can ask them questions, you can see that they're a real human being that's got real human beings around them. That kind of stuff matters. It helps. If you need to be in contact with somebody to, to help you learn more about what they're doing and, and feel like you're connected to them, please, please tell me. We want to get you contacted to things like that because it's not just that Paul is here for profit and personnel. He's also there because it's personal. And lastly, let's talk then about prayer and the supplication for missions, the kind of prayer that we offer, what we're asking God for. 
Paul's request here at the end is not meant to be a full guide for praying for missions. You'll notice that he doesn't say, hey, you need to pray that the Lord softens the hearts of the people in Spain. He's not asking for that quite yet. I have no doubt that he will ask for that once he gets back up to Rome, but he knows that there are a couple of things that have to happen first. He knows that he is going to Jerusalem and that that is indeed a very, very risky thing. There are people on every side who are upset with him. The Jews who are there are quite clearly upset with him because anyone and everyone hates a turncoat. And they must feel like Paul has absolutely acted as a traitor to them. He was once zealous for the law. He was once zealous for the things of God according to how the Jews and the Judaizers viewed things. And now Paul is actually preaching this sort of heretical thing that Jesus is the Christ. Everywhere Paul has gone, they have stood in his way. He has no reason to think that that won't happen in Jerusalem. But there are Jewish Christians there as well who are probably not quite as settled with Paul as he would like. Now, it's true that he had persecuted the church before. It seems like he has gone through a lot since then. And, and what's more, he has, he has made his way to Jerusalem already and perhaps he has already sort of patched things up with some of them. I have no doubt that there's still some difficulty there. What's more, what we find when Paul actually goes back they have questions about the kind of theology that he's preaching and what that means for the temple and what that means for the way in which the Jewish Christians who are there worship God. Paul has to smooth and iron out all of that, but he knows that difficulties await him. So because what he is doing is risky, Paul asks for three things from the Romans. First, that he would be kept safe from unbelievers. Don't give my enemies an opportunity to strike me down. Keep me safe from harm. Every city that Paul has gone into, the vast majority of the trouble that he has reached has been because of the Jews, and he knows that won't be any different. It will be much worse in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, because Paul knows the importance of the task, he asks to be delivered from their evil intentions, not simply to skip it over, but to be delivered from it. Secondly, he wants the offering that he's going to give to be acceptable. There is a considerable generosity in the gift that he's trying to give, and they are considerably poor. Nevertheless, there is a question in Paul's mind about whether the Jewish Christians will actually accept help from Gentiles. And he is concerned. Thus, number three, he wants to come safely to the Romans. And he needs both of the first two things to be true in order for the third to be right. Obviously, he can't get there safely if he's dead. Secondly, though, the gospel will not be safe if the people who are in Jerusalem refuse to accept the gift of the Gentiles. I have no doubt that Paul would view that as a ripping of the body of Christ. And the unity that he has sought throughout the book of Romans and throughout much of his writings to sew together the unity of Jew and Gentile together as one people. It will be difficult for him to maintain that message when the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have absolutely refused the gift. He asked for them to pray for all three of these things. So what comes of these prayers? Well, praise God, he answers every single one of them. Don't have direct evidence, but it's, it seems like the offering was accepted by the Jewish Christians. Acts isn't fully clear. Apparently, it's just not that important of a theological issue for Luke, but Acts 24, 17 implies very strongly that the offering was accepted. And Paul does eventually make it safe to his destination, that's kind of where the whole asking God for something and the way God answers it gets a little tricky. Because what Paul clearly intends, I think in his head, if not in his heart, is for him to be able to go to Jerusalem and him to be able to leave scot-free. 
No bruises, no bites, not in chains. Paul will eventually make it to Rome, but he will not do it without his fair share of bruising, and he will not do it without chains on his hands and his feet. The Jews will indeed arrest him, but God will be kind. Multiple times will God spare his life from plots and plans of the Jewish people, from snakes and shipwrecks. God will spare him. God will indeed get him to Rome. He will answer the very prayer of Paul and the prayer of these Roman people that Paul would get there safely. He will do it in a very unexpected way, dare I say, a way that Paul would not have enjoyed had he known. In Acts 28, we finish the book of Acts with these words, that Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul makes it in chains He makes it under arrest, but he makes it. This is an answer to his prayer. He might not have shown up how he wanted to, but God gets him there. We should remember all of that as we pray for missions. Our prayers are not always answered the way we like them to be. Our prayers are not always answered through the the mechanisms and the modes that we we think are most appropriate, that we in our own wisdom say, this is the best way to handle this. God oftentimes has ways of handling things that seems absolutely mind-boggling stupid. And only after we get through it do we say, oh, I get that. Turns out God's not stupid. He knows what he's doing. We will pray for people on the mission field. They'll have tremendous odds to overcome whether that's because of the culture they're in, the hardness of the hearts of the people, the difficulty of the political situation. They all have to overcome personal odds, their own biases, their own tendencies to sin. We pray that God might answer those questions. We pray that God might answer those prayers. That as they pray for fruit on the field, that God would be there with them, helping them, seeing them through. But again, God doesn't always answer those prayers the way we want him to. Friend, you need to be open to the idea that you might be the answer to those prayers. And certainly, there are things that you need to pray for that you can't possibly be an answer for. There are political situations that that you're not going to be able to step in as an ambassador and clear up. Nevertheless, there are times when our going to the mission field, our giving, can be the answer to prayer that the people who are on the mission field are seeking. You might think, well, that's that's silly. I give very little. I don't have much of an opportunity to go. Maybe I can go on a short-term mission trip in 2035, but until then I'm kind of booked. Perhaps. Perhaps you don't give much. Perhaps you don't know much. Perhaps you think that you're feeble in strength and you can't do much. But it really doesn't have much to do with your strength and your might anyway. God is very capable of overcoming any obstacles that you might have. Moses stammered before him, said, hey, I, I can't speak well. I, I stutter. I, I don't know what to say. Can you tell me what to say? God, I don't want to do it. God says, just let me be God. You might be little, and you might think that you're of little use, Paul was there paralyzed by imprisonment and still did mighty works in Rome. 
through the very help of God. God can do much through the faithfulness of a little. And it might be on top of that, as Paul himself will notice here, that God will answer your prayers and will provide for the good of missions through your inconvenience and through your suffering. If you want to pray for God to accomplish things through you, you have to be prepared that he will do that in ways that you will not find comfortable. He will inconvenience you. He will make your life difficult. Because sometimes that has to happen. But you have to be willing to accept those risks in order to see the kingdom of God go forward. The point is this. We trust if we pray like Paul desires the Romans to pray and do the very things that he wants the Romans to do, that God will indeed help us in all things to accomplish his will. The Lord will always give us precisely what we need, even if it doesn't look like it's precisely what we want or what we think we need to provide. But we need to understand that such help will not always come in ways that we, and in our limited and truncated wisdom, think that it should. So make bold prayers to God. Ask the Lord to use you mightily. Make bold requests of him which fall in lines with his word and watch and wait as the Lord works, even if it's in a mysterious way. Paul would never have dreamed that the safest place for him to be is in Roman custody. But I have no doubt that God meant it that way. The mission of the church marches on. We are to make disciples in our own midst, and we are going to make more before Jesus returns. But we are also to take the gospel where it has never been named before. But we understand quite readily that that proclamation of the gospel happens in a world that is filled with sin and is filled with heartbreak and difficulty. So we ask that obstacles that seem overpowering might be turned into opportunities for the gospel to shine. We seek not only the spiritual well-being of our neighbors, but their physical good as well, loving them as we would love ourselves. And we realize that any of those things that are indeed barriers, that don't turn into opportunities, but things that we actually have to go through and around, we remember that our God is an immensely powerful God. After all, Jesus told us that the gates of Hades cannot stop the church. I doubt a customs agent can do too much. So pray with hope, trust, faith, that the gospel will indeed be carried forth. That lives, yours, your unbelieving neighbors, people who live in Taiwan, people who live in Congo, will be changed. And so the kingdom of God will advance. This is the commission that we have been called to, and it is the work that our Lord has left for us to do until he returns. Let us get on it. Let's pray. Jesus, our Lord, may you shine in the midst of your people and allow that light to penetrate the darkness of this world. May that light help call sinners home, give hope to those who are hopeless. Lead us to do what is necessary in your will to complete this task. Convict hearts, strengthen wills, calm fears. We ask that you do all of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that his name might be found on the tongue of people from every tribe, nation, and language. Amen. Will you stand and sing our song of response this morning? Take my life and let it be.